This is Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. Construction Law Today is a podcast about current topics in American construction law. Your host for Construction Law Today is David Suchar. Our podcast, Construction Law Today, began in July 2019 and is now in its third season. In our first two seasons, my good friend Buzz Tarlow produced 25 episodes on a variety of timely and interesting topics in the field of construction law. In our upcoming season, I expect to produce similar podcasts at the rate of about one new podcast per month. As always, we welcome your questions and comments. Please let us know what we can do to improve the podcast. The contact information for Construction Law Today is found at the end of this podcast. On behalf of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law, thanks for listening. Welcome to the podcast. So we have a great topic and a very interesting guest to talk to us today about that topic. First, the topic, which is private equity and its growing influence in the construction industry and thus on construction law. So private equity are the funds often set up as limited partnerships that invest in and restructure private companies, increasingly doing so throughout the construction industry. And our guest has a great deal of experience in this area. I have had some experience in the private equity area this year, so I'm interested in the topic, and I think many of you will be as well. Our guest today is Ben Wheatley, a partner at the Dwayne Morris Law Firm in Austin, Texas. Benton was recently named Best Lawyer's Lawyer of the Year for Construction Law in Austin, Texas for 2024. He practices construction law exclusively with a significant portion of his practice relating to representation of private equity firms and REITs who are engaged in construction. He is a diehard Oklahoma Sooners fan and North Carolina Tar Heels fan. His claim to fame in the North Carolina way is sitting behind Michael Jordan during graduation at the class of 1986's commencement. He is happy to be participating in this podcast, and he hopes it impresses his two daughters. This comes out of his Construction Lawyer article from earlier this year. He is a longtime member and participant in the ABA Forum on Construction Law. So with that, Benton, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, David. I think maybe the most interesting thing I'll say during the entire time is Michael Jordan was a geography major. Most people don't know that. I did not know that. I grew up in Chicago, was a big Bulls fan during the 1980s and 90s, and I was not aware of his geography major status. So thank you for that. So I'm really glad to be here. I think this is a very interesting topic. I get curious about things when they're new and I get involved in them. And probably, say, seven years ago, private equity wasn't a part of my practice. I mean, I obviously knew what it was, but the developments in my practice which first began with a real estate lawyer in my firm saying, hey, Ben, will you look at this contract for this project? And they had a private equity firm and, you know, it's just kind of gone from there. Whereas five years ago, I had one private equity client. Now I have a number of them and increasingly getting to work with those folks, helping them navigate. And this is the newest part of it, their involvement in ground up construction which I think is a bit of a deviation. You know, most people think about private equity or, or REITs and they're buying existing properties. Right. But now what we see is they're increasing exposure or involvement in ground up 
construction activities. You shared with me an American Investment Council report about the amount of money from private equity that is flowing into construction projects. I think if I recall, it was that there were $740 billion in funds looking for deals generally, and that $100 billion of them are looking for deals in the construction industry. How over the last five years have you seen in your practice private equity impact the construction industry? Well, I mean, first, these numbers are staggering. You're talking about numbers that are bigger than most countries' economies. And American Investment Council said, you know, typically at the end of 2021, there was $738 billion in what they call dry powder, meaning dollars out there looking for deals, dollars already committed to be invested. And what they found in their research is every year for the prior five years to that, $100 billion of that was directed towards real estate and increasingly that percentage is into new construction. And so my thought and one of the things that just kind of piqued your interest because you'd already seen this a little bit is that anybody that's a full-time construction practitioner, just given the staggering numbers that are involved, you're going to be involved in a project that has a private equity component to it in the next three years if you're a full-time construction lawyer. I think the odds are very strong that that'll occur. So it ought to be of interest to everybody because it just does present a number of different issues that most people haven't spent a lot of time thinking about. I'm sure that's true about people having more and more experience in this area. Tell us a bit about the ways in which private equity firms are involved in active construction, including some of the terms that come up, SPEs, limited partnerships. How do those entities impact the types of parties that we're used to seeing in construction owners, contractors, architects, engineers? It goes hand in glove with another trend that we're seeing. And I think everybody probably be somewhat familiar with this, which is developers have decided that there's efficiencies to be gained from forming their own captive construction companies. And so what you end up having, again, this was not something I saw much seven years ago. Now I see it once a month in terms of a new project. So what that means is there's an, a vertical integration on the part of the developer where Let's talk about Bob developer who owns a development company and the development company goes out and forms their own captive construction company and then wants to form an owner entity sitting in between them. And typically the form that's chosen is the limited partnership because that's the one that lends itself to the best investment vehicle, if you will. And so they'll form a limited partnership where they control the general partner as a special purpose entity to own that asset that's the subject of that project. And then where the private equity comes in is typically they'll be the passive limited partner investors that the general partner goes and solicits to fund the project. And this part's anecdotal. I don't have any real numbers on it, but what they're doing is kind of crowding out the traditional role that a commercial bank would fill as the main financer, most of these projects will still have a loan involved, but there'll be a much higher equity position from the owner than would be typical because of these institutional funds coming in through the private equity firms. There is, and I have seen this, some confusion from traditional construction parties and construction lawyers who are used to dealing with the processes that they are used to dealing with when private equity comes to play in the construction space 
But isn't there also confusion from the private equity side about the processes that we are used to in terms of project delivery and otherwise in the construction industry? It's one of those things. I mean, you think about a profile of someone that works at a very successful private equity firm, and it's incredibly intelligent, hard-charging folks, Harvard MBA types. And typically, they've got a robust real estate background, meaning they know how to absolutely break down a real estate deal, understand the pro formas and the ins and outs of that. And what I find, and I want to be real careful about this, is sometimes that confidence gets placed on their understanding of the construction process as well. And what I find is that confidence is a bit misplaced because they just simply don't have the level of experience. It's not that we're dealing with concepts that they can't comprehend. It's just, David, you've been doing this for decades and just with your focus solely on ground up construction, and there's a lot of nuance and a perfect example is the typical form that they use in terms of the model for pricing is a CM at risk cost plus model where you're looking at reimbursement and what they don't understand the areas where money could be diverted, where there could be self-dealing on that side of the fence between the general partner that controls this special purpose entity limited partnership and the construction entity that they also control. Right. An example of where all these issues come up, and it's important to understand these issues Some of them represent a ton of risk for private equity, but if you're a lawyer for a private equity firm going after a bad deal, they also represent a lot of opportunity. And what I mean by that is, sorry, go ahead. I did want to talk with you about that concept. I figured that what we do is break some of our discussion up into the construction process that is pre-project considerations, what happens on the project itself, what happens with claims, I think. Our construction lawyer audience is maybe interested in that from the different angles of the project. But yes, you and I, before we do that, we talked about the opportunity that this area of law, this developing area presents, in part because some of these issues are ones that have not been addressed before, that courts really haven't grappled with in some ways. And there are these ethical duties. There are duties to each of our clients directly that are implied by a lot of what is going on on these projects with private equity. Can you tell us about some of those challenges and opportunities? First, the challenges kind of fall into two baskets. One is lawyer dealing with their own ethics, compliance, and the risk of joint representation that could just We're all familiar with this concept of the frog in the pot of boiling water, where you could find yourself with a conflict when you had no intention or the best intentions. And the other part is counseling your clients about their risks. But I want to talk more about the opportunity, because one of the great things about construction that I talk with young folks in particular about is It's really hard to get a concept when you're in law school about how complicated our practice is because we have a body of construction law, but then we have all these other ancillary sort of bolt-on areas of practice that we have to at least have some basis of understanding, you know, to be effective. And what that means when things are dynamic is nobody's an expert when you're seeing changes. I'm 59 years old, and the only reason I have a head start, my head start on this is seven years. It's not 32. And so for a younger lawyer, this is one of those areas, it's not going to change. 
in terms of the numbers. The curve on what's going to happen, I think, is steep and up to the right in terms of this being a continuing trend. And so for younger lawyers that are listening in, go bone up on these issues and start talking about them and start looking for opportunities, either be it through things like Austin Bar Association Young Lawyers or Minneapolis Young Lawyers or ABA, whatever it is, and put together a pitch and a speech and start talking about it because sooner or later, you're going to get a hit and get a chance to go work in this area. And then kind of once you get a feel for it, then you're as much an expert as anybody else is. Good advice. You've been doing this in this area, as you said, for seven years, and you do all parts of it from planning the construction project, contracting issues during construction and claims afterwards. Let's start with the beginning and then move toward the end. In the beginning, what issues do you look out for as a practitioner during the planning and contracting phase? The number one issue in this context is understanding that somewhere embedded in that general partner, limited partner relationship is a fiduciary responsibility. And it's even though we all know this from law school, it's worth highlighting again. And the fiduciary duty is the highest duty that exists in the civil, i.e. non-criminal law which means you must put the party you owe the duty to their interests ahead of your own. I mean, you think about that and the ways that you can get in trouble. And so we spend a lot of time thinking about compliance and what that looks like. And the concepts that we discuss, none of them taken by themselves are very complicated. They're all things you'd be familiar with, but knowing when they matter The thing that I think that is the most important is counseling my client. Say I have a developer client, for example, and they're going to engage in this, is that the record that you need to have at the end of the day is one you've got to put in place before there are any problems. Because if you come back after the fact, it just looks like you're trying to pencil whip a situation. And the point is there's some very simple things that you can do to be able to demonstrate if somebody comes after your client with an allegation of a breach of fiduciary duty saying, look, this is precisely how we set this up. You know, we've had these five safeguards in place. We documented those safeguards. We documented that we trained on those safeguards. We documented that we complied with those safeguards at every point of the way through the project. And so that's the first thing that I look for. It sounds like what you're doing is figuring out, A, who your client is, B, who your client owes duty to, and then C, what actions you have to take on the project, including how you document those actions, right? Absolutely. And I want to circle back because you said something that's very important is who's your client. I'm in a large firm and we have a compliance legal department you know, that does intake. They laugh with me about every time I get one of these new deals, because the first time I think I ask is for the org chart to literally figure out who we're representing. And those have been some incredibly complex conversations with the potential client on the phone, walking us through how they're structuring the deal. Because the first thing, if we're going by first principles, the first thing you got to do is who are we working for here? Who are we not working for? We'll talk about that a little bit more after our break. We'll be right back with more of the podcast.
PMA Consultants is a leading provider of project advisory, construction claims analysis, and expert witness services. Our experts have a wealth of experience in identifying, analyzing, preparing, and presenting claims and disputes on construction and engineering projects. PMA is proud to be a longtime supporter of the ABA Construction Law Forum and its members. Connect with our construction claims experts on our website, pmaconsultants.com. Welcome back to the podcast. So Benton, when we broke, you were talking about the issue of who your client is. And I thought to mention a comment that I heard made on one of the private equity projects that I am working on. Someone remarked that, hey, at the end of the day, someone actually owns this building, right? There are so many entities involved. Someone owns this at the end of the day, correct? I thought to just ask you about how you clear up confusion about who the client is, who has ownership interests on these private equity issues. Yeah, David, I think it's a really important topic and kind of identifies why if I was a younger lawyer, I'd be excited about this because complexity to me equals opportunity. I was relating to you a recent deal we looked at and we were trying to work through with our compliance counsel who our client was, and there were 32 separate entities on this org chart. And, you know, and we're trying to identify a couple and our wonderful armed forces, the special forces have a saying that I think applies here, which is slow is smooth, smooth is fast. And the point that I'm trying to make there is you need to get this right out of the gate. And so the point is approaching this very methodically to figure out who your client is and get it right, because one of the biggest risks the lawyer, the individual lawyer has in this sort of arena is the risk of unintentional joint representation and understanding where you might have conflicts. And in order to approach any of that, you gotta know who your client is. And that's not immediately obvious. Let me just say the polite way. Our compliance counsel, I'm sure that they've said a few cuss words when I send them, (laughs) hey, I need help with figuring one of these out. It's like, oh my goodness, another one of those, you know? Right. So once you do figure out who your client is and you go through the contracting process, you're in the middle of construction. What are some of the typical issues you see come up in private equity controlled construction projects? An easy one that highlights a whole bunch of issues is just bear with me and lay out a little fact pattern here for a second. So we've got one of these vertically integrated projects where we have a developer that controls a special purpose entity, SPE limited partnership that answers your first question, which is that's the asset that owns the property. Right. They've contracted with the general contractor that the developer also controls. And your law firm has been involved in setting all of those things up. And so during the project routinely in the ordinary course, a question might come up about entitlement to a change order. And Maybe the transactional folks flip that to the construction folks. Hey, can you paper up this change order for me? I would submit there's a set of circumstances there. The minute you start working on that, the trap, if you will, is snapshot and you've got a conflict of interest because now you're working for the contractor against the interests of the general partner that you set up. Right. seems like there would be pretty obvious self-dealing potential allegations that could be made. There are, but we were talking before the break about getting things set up on the front side. 
a world-class arbitrator told me one time when we were looking at one of these deals, she said, uh, Allison Snyder down in Houston, you know, Ben, everybody walked into this open-eyed and knew exactly what was what. That's not the issue. There's nothing inherently wrong with doing the project this way. In fact, there are a bunch of efficiencies, but in order to take advantage of those, you need to get things set up front. An example of how you would do that, developers want to run fast and lean. And so, you know, for example, on an ordinary project, if you've got arm's length financing with the lender, they may not want to have the architect that involved in the construction administration phase, because that's, you know, 50,000 bucks or whatever that number is. I would submit to you that in a situation like this, an architect, if you're the developer or representing the developer that owns all this, that's your best friend. Because if you take a standard A201 and let's call it an A133 cost plus CM at risk, there's plans for the architect to, you know, as a condition precedent to approving pay apps to make a site visit and review. The architect must be involved in approval of change orders. And so if you're trying to avoid the appearance of self-dealing, what better way to avoid that by saying, look, we had a licensed professional that at least in Texas would owe a duty to the public of objectivity, even if I hired them, come in and take a arm's length review. Is this pay app worthy of approval, worthy of getting paid? Is this change order something that I should certify approval of. Because then if somebody says, hey, you're self-dealing, the first thing you do is pivot to the architect and say, look, the architect certified these actions and they owe a duty to the public of objectivity. Conversely, if you're on the other side of a defense to dispute, that's one of the first things you want to go look for is what kind of promises were made about third parties being involved in approval of various things. If the architect wasn't hired, to approve pay apps or wasn't hired to approve change orders, then it's like, look, you're basically the developer. You're having a conversation with yourself saying, hey, self, what do I think about approving this change order for myself? Well, I think that's a really good idea. It sounds like where developers are good at streamlining processes, saving money that way, maybe there's even more of a burden on the construction lawyers involved in these processes to add safeguards, add checks and balances to guard from any allegation of self-dealing. Is that right? Absolutely. And to go back to kind of the core takeaways, if no one takes away anything else from this conversation as a lawyer, you've got two directions to look. As one, as your lawyer, your own ethical obligations and not stepping into a trap of joint representation. And then the other is to adequately counsel your clients on these issues and their own ethical requirements. And one of the things that we've thought about, and we spent a lot of time thinking about this and trying to make it where it was not unapproachable, but understanding that some people may see this as needless bureaucracy, but in a situation like this, I think it's your best friend is these barriers that need to be put up up front. And again, documented up front. You've talked about the type of electronic and financial barriers, barriers as between different types of entities. Tell us a bit about how you can safeguard yourself and your clients by erecting those barriers. Yeah, the number one thing is what I'll call contract compliance and project hygiene, which is back to making sure that you're doing all the things that you say you're going to do with an architect in the contract and having the architect involved. 
Another is an organizational barrier. And I know a lot of people might kind of roll their eyes and say, well, that's just on paper, but that's the best you can do. And the point is to create an internal ethics wall saying, Tim over here is going to be the sole and exclusive decision maker for the limited partnership and approval of change orders, et cetera. And Bob over here is going to be the sole and exclusive decision maker for the general contractor submitting those change orders. And they cannot talk about this stuff other than in formal conversation, even though they're in the same organization. Another one would be an electronic barrier is walling off access to documents and files, creating separate files that Kim only has access to her file as managing the LP and Bob only has access to his file. And I would go ahead and say another piece of this is get separate email addresses for this. Another one's a financial barrier. And this one's easy, different bank accounts. And then a transactional barrier where as you move things through and as you've got things that have to be executed, agreed on, be it certificates of completion or pay app approval, change orders, whatever it is that you've got two standalone decision makers and you're documenting this every step of the way so that you create this hurdle for people accusing you of self-dealing to say, look, we did the very best we could in terms of looking over the horizon, anticipating these issues, documenting what we were going to do, following that plan. So no, we didn't self-deal. That's the best you can do. All that sounds like sensible advice for construction project participants and lawyers. Let me ask you this, Benton. So a large portion of our audience are construction lawyers, and many of them are litigators like myself. And so we come to construction project issues often from the back end, right? When there are problems. What types of claims do you routinely see that are either unique to or common on private equity-led construction projects? Well, the number one are this allegation of self-dealing and violation of a fiduciary duty, you know, to put the limited partners of the asset SPE owner or the owner special purpose entity at the limited partnership level. And how that works is that's the group that has all the equity and has pumped it in. And, you know, let's say you got a $20 million project and $3 million worth of change orders were approved. And it turns out they were really not, entitlement was not really demonstrated. Well, what you've just done is drain $3 million worth of equity out of that limited partnership group to the detriment of the limited partners that you owe a fiduciary duty to. And that's a bad place to be. Another thing to think about, and this isn't really a claim per se, but it's an approach, is, you know, many times you may come to one of these deals after the original asset has been sold. And so you want to go back and try to find yourself in the best position possible. And maybe you're representing the purchaser and you've got a bunch of defects that you just discovered. The number one thing to do is to go back and look at the purchase and sale agreement at the assignment provisions. And what we find is that's actually a, a complex little area of the law that there are a lot of mistakes made. You and I discussed the idea that at that assignment level, there is often two baskets of rights that you come across, right? Contracts and then the rights and liabilities. How can those two baskets be exploited by people who come on the scene later on? Well, first, you got to make sure that you've got those baskets. And that's very important. And one of the things that gets missed 
is this differentiation is you got to make sure the assignments give you the contract and all the rights related to the contract, i.e. the claims. They're not the same. And one good thing about this is standings determine on the date you file suit. So as long as you haven't filed suit, if you find that the assignments aren't adequate, most times these purchase and sale agreements have look back provisions that say the parties are required to execute all documents to give full effect to the intent and you can actually go fix it. And so even four years down the road, say, I need you to execute these assignments that fix the ones and people will howl about it, but it's legal. And the first thing you want to do is make sure you've got these two baskets because you need to make sure the duty's owed to you. And if you don't have the contract, then all you're doing is getting somebody else's damages. And that may not be the basket of damages that has the big number attached to it. But then once you have that, then it's just going back in and doing your due diligence on what are the rights and where are all the places that promises were made like having the architect involved that they fell down on. And then another big part of this is the audit, for example. You know, and this is one of those areas where when we first started talking today, David, I said, look, our private equity friends, they're all typically extremely smart and extremely well-educated, but their knowledge base of experience comes from pure real estate. And so they'll say, all right, we're going to do an audit. Auditor, go get all the bank records. We want to see the pay apps and who all got paid. And I'm just like, stop right there. You need to go get the checks or the electronic transfer documents because we're all familiar with the scenario, you know, in project closeout where a general contractor goes to his subs and says, hey, I can get you 80% of your retainage now, or I can get you 100%, but that might be six months. And if the sub buys off on the 80%, well, then who owns that 20%? If that doesn't flow all the way back to the limited partners, you've got to breach a fiduciary duty because it's a cost plus contract. And that money should inure back to the owner because you didn't incur those costs. You may be able to come on the scene later on after something happens and exercise the audit rights as if you were the owner, for example. Depending on the time frame and what the contract says that the audit rights extend to, you know, typically it's like, I want to say the most common that I see is three years. So let's say you buy the asset 18 months in and your assignments are right, then I think you absolutely would have the right to go conduct that audit. But the point is the private equity folks, they don't know all the little nuances about how projects close out and how they really work. When I first started counseling these folks, and when I told them about all the ways that they could kind of get skinned, there's just kind of deafening silence in the conference room. Like, wait a minute, maybe we don't know quite as much about this as we thought we did. And that's really where the opportunity comes in for people is going to them and saying, look, I'm not trying to tell you that you guys don't know what you're doing. But what I'm telling you is I'm David Suture. I've been doing this for 30 years I understand all the different ways that contractors do things. And I'm not saying any of them are, I'm not getting into the ethics or morality of any of this. We're just talking about the real world, about what happens on construction projects. Mm -hmm. And there's so many of those little nuances that you don't know if you haven't been doing it for a while. And that's where the opportunity to really add value to your counseling, your client comes in. Benton, all of this has been great. I might ask you to look into your crystal ball for a moment. 
what do you see as future trends in this area, things that might happen in the future? And then any final advice for construction lawyers just getting into this area of law and practice? The trend is not rocket science. It's that this is going to continue. And the odds of you not seeing this in your practice are really remote in the next three to five years at some level. And nobody's saying that you've got to know all of these issues. And the whole point of this conversation is just to make it an approachable topic and point it out that it's out there. Everybody's got to go figure it out for themselves. But the opportunity is to go figure it out and to be able to put yourself in a position of being able to go to a client and let's say a client's interviewing three different firms. How are you going to differentiate yourself? You differentiate yourself by saying, look, we've done our homework and these are the places that we think we need to go rocks, we need to look under, or however you want to couch it, you know, that we don't think the other people we're interviewing against are going to come at you with. And so it really represents an opportunity to stand out to the people that you're trying to do work for. And the other part that should be exciting for young folks is, like I said, when you're younger, your hurdle is there's so many other people that have been doing this so much longer than I have. Well, in this case, nobody's got a head start of more than five or seven years. And even then, you know, I articulated to you a question yesterday that I was on the phone with about a collective hundred years of legal experience and none of us could answer. This is something that we're talking about right now where I have a contractor client that has a PE firm that they work with regularly that has asked them to enter into a joint venture agreement that would then go own the general partner, own the construction company, and have all these risks. And so the first question is, how do we insulate our folks from liability to the private equity firm's limited partners? Nobody knew the answer to that. One way would be create an SPE that is part of the joint venture, et cetera. But there are even ways around that. I won't get into it at this point. But the point is, there's still so many questions that I think nobody's really ever dealt with. And I think if you got on Westline, we're trying to research it, you wouldn't find anything that's on point because I haven't seen any of these deals fully litigated and go to an appellate court where you really get to flush these things out. And so it's really just an opportunity to create your own expertise and to go out and get business. Because the bottom line is when you're talking about numbers, on a yearly basis that are bigger than probably all but like 15 economies in the world, there's opportunity. For sure. Ben, this has been great. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. You've raised some issues that we may need to follow up on in the future, but thanks again. Well, David, it's been a pleasure and thank you very much for having me. You have been listening to Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. All rights relating to this podcast are owned and controlled by the American Bar Association. No reproduction or reuse of this podcast is permissible without the express written consent of the American Bar Association. For more information about construction law today, or if you have any questions or comments, you may contact our host, David Suchar, at david.suchar at maslin.com. Our podcast is produced with the assistance of Peak Recording Studios in Bozeman, Montana. Thank you for listening and look for our next edition of Construction Law Today.